Uh, do you know what it means to be treated as an outsider? Uh, to be left out, to be overlooked. I don't know if this was your experience at school, that sports teams got picked and uh, everyone else got picked and there was you, just not, not picked. Uh, or, or maybe you were ganged up on and uh, treated as different, by what you wore or your haircut or your pimples or whatever it might have been or you spoke in a funny way. It's never a nice feeling, is it? It gets slightly better as an adult, but let's be honest, even as adults we don't like being left out. Uh, have you ever been treated that way because you're a Christian? Maybe the conversation stops when you walk into the lunchroom at work. Uh, or you don't get invited to that party or that weekend away or drinks after work because people just don't understand you. They don't know how to act. Or maybe you do get invited and then they ignore you or make fun of you. You feel like an outsider. Can I suggest that's the reality of the Christian life rather than being the exception? Being a Christian has always meant being an outsider. Ever since the time of Jesus himself who was rejected and despised. So we should join him. That's the point that's being made in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 13. We should accept the rejection that comes from being connected to Jesus, we should own it, in fact. Uh, have a look at chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. They're right in the middle of that passage that um, Cheryl read for us. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus himself suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. The picture is Jesus, part of the Jewish people, part of Jerusalem. In fact, it was the city of his ancestor, King David, and yet he's also rejected by his own people. He's treated as an outsider and they drag him out of the city and he's stumbling under the weight of a rough wooden cross. He's insulted, spat upon, beaten, and he's suffering to make us holy. Now, if he's done that, then let us go to him outside the camp. Let's follow him, imitate him. Let's leave behind the people who reject him. And let's suffer rejection together with him. Let's bear the disgrace he bore. Now that's the call. It's funny language, isn't it? Let's go to him outside the camp. Let's go to him outside the city gate. But remember, this is a call to Jewish Christians. Uh, they're being tempted to fit in with the Jews who are all around them, to let go of Jesus. So their call is to go uh, outside the camp of Judaism. And so it's a call to us as well, uh, those who are tempted to blend in with our culture, tempted to change what we say or do or think or believe, to change who we are so that we'll fit in. This is a call to us and it's saying be an outsider just like Jesus. Now what makes it easier to do that is the fact the thing we're outside of, it won't last. This world is passing away. 
And what we are actually part of, God's kingdom, it's bigger and stronger. Have a look at verse 14. Verse 14 gives us a reason why we should go to Jesus outside, why we should be an outsider. For or because here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, this world will pass away. It's not going to last. Why would you cling to it? But the city that is to come is built for eternity, just like we are. That's why we're to go outside the city to Jesus and bear his disgrace. It's like, uh, it's like being in a lifeboat and you're looking back at the Titanic. All those people. It's big. It's warm. But it's not lasting. It won't last. Much better to step outside that, to be an outsider. You see, when Jesus returns, this world will be shaken and destroyed and only God's kingdom will remain. That is the kingdom that can't be shaken. Now that's the key idea, I think, in this last section of Hebrews. Look at chapter 12, verse 28, where we... Uh, towards the start of our reading. Chapter 12, verse 28. I hope you're following it in your Bible. I love it when I can hear pages rustling as you've turned a page. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, there's the theology, there's the indicative or the description. Jesus' work is sure. It's solid. It's dependable. The whole of Hebrews has just shown it. He's a better priest with a better name and a better sacrifice and he's bringing a better kingdom. Therefore, since we are receiving that kingdom, we can be confident. Then it follows up that theory, that theology, that indicative with the practical, with the imperative, the command, what we should do in response to this truth. Since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, Verse 28, let us be thankful and so worship or serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now this verse, it's often used when people talk about what church should look like, what our Sunday gatherings uh, should be like. uh, There's the word worship, it must obviously be talking about church. Our meetings are about worshipping God acceptably with reverence and awe. So the argument goes. And so our churches will be respectful and dignified and we'll sing hymns and we'll have prayers and it will be uh, respectful and dignified. But can I suggest I don't think it's talking about what we're to do in church at all, at, at least not specifically church. Church is certainly one of the places where we will thank and serve God. But this is talking about much more than just what we do on a Sunday morning. The key I suggest to understanding what this whole section is talking about is to remember that it's a letter that compares the far better Christian experience with the Jewish experience. And so the writer is a little bit... Naughty? Well, it's not naughty. He's a bit provocative. He he uses Jewish categories and concepts to describe what the Christian life is going to look like. So that word worship, 
Don't assume it's talking about church. That's our experience. We jump straight to church. The word used is the same one that's used in Hebrews to describe what the priest's work is in the tabernacle, what the priest's service is. So chapter 8, verse 5 says, the priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. It's the same word here as let us worship or serve God acceptably. Chapter 13, verse 10, it should be there on the page in front of you. Chapter 13, verse 10 translates that same word worship as minister. Those who minister at the tabernacle. And so the writer's purpose, I think, is he's saying it's not just Jews who offer service to God. Christians are to offer service as well. But do you notice this is service which is acceptable to God? 12.28 says it's to be acceptable service or acceptable worship to God. But our service to God, it's not about what happens in the tabernacle. Our service is not what priests do. It's not about getting candles lit in the right order. It's not about washing our hands the right way or, or cutting up the sacrifice the right way. Our service to God is about right attitudes. It begins, be thankful. We are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. How can you not be thankful and have a smile on your face? Second attitude, since God is a consuming fire, since he's holy and just, we are to serve him with an attitude of reverence and awe. Caution. On the one hand, but also, in in a positive sense, wonder and respect with a full sense of the seriousness of the things we are doing. We're serving the God of the universe. We're serving the God who's spoken to us from heaven through his one and only Son. How could you not serve him with reverence and awe? But our service isn't just about... uh, Sorry. But if our service isn't about sacrifices, what is it to be? If we're not doing what the priests do, what should we be doing? Well, I want to suggest that the end of chapter 12 is actually a heading which is then explained into chapter 13. Chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, serve God acceptably, I think is the heading, and then chapter 13 shows us what that looks like. Chapter 13 shows what acceptable service to God looks like. Uh, One commentator, Al Moller, says this about the connection between chapter 12 and chapter 13. The author closes chapter 12 by saying, let us be thankful and serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. In this last chapter, the author tells us how to do that very thing. So let me just read, forget the chapter division is there. You do know that the original Greek versions of the Bible, they they don't have chapter divisions. They they were put in a long time later. A thousand years later? A long time later. So let's just read the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13 and see if you can understand my point. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. 
do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing. Remember those in prison, etc. Do you see the point? Acceptable service to God is in attitude and in deed. It's not just on Sundays, it's not just in a church gathering, it's all of the week in all of our life. Now, if you're not convinced, let me give you another uh, argument. It's not just service where to offer God, which is different from the priests. Interestingly, and also provocatively, Christians are encouraged to offer sacrifices. Did you notice that? Jump down to verse 15 of chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And not just words. And, let, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The whole sermon, the whole letter of Hebrews has been about how useless sacrifices are. How the whole Jewish system of temple and altar and burnt offerings don't actually work. And yet here it is, verse 15, let us offer to God a sacrifice. But notice the difference. Firstly, our sacrifice is through Jesus. Because of the greater sacrifice he has made on our behalf. Because it is he who has brought us into God's presence. Secondly, what sort of sacrifice is it? Well, it's a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. We're not to offer God a dead goat. God's not interested in that. He's interested in a life that directs praise and thanks to him. Yes, praise is songs of praise, but more than songs, it's confession, uh, sorry, conversations that confess the name of Jesus. Conversations that declare he is the one who brings grace and forgiveness. Words that declare the gospel are sacrifices. And not just words, actions as well. Verse 16 says, do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That is the response which is a fitting or acceptable service to God for everything he's done. That type of all of life, all of the week sacrifice, that's far more appropriate than to spend a few dollars to buy an animal and then pour its blood out. Or for us, it's far more appropriate than a mumbled prayer to God before you run out the day, uh, run out the door to start your day and then you ignore him for the rest of the day. It's far more appropriate than your one hour duty on a Sunday morning sitting through a church service. God wants a service. God wants a sacrifice which is far more than that. That is hardly suitable. He deserves everything we can offer. Words, actions, desires, goals, choices, priorities. He, he deserves our money and our emotions and our time, our passions, our possessions, our plans, our priorities.
Preachers struggle to convey this. Songwriters struggle to convey this. They, they struggle to come up with the words to, to, to adequately offer our, a suitable response to God. No, nothing we can say or do can measure up. Oh, for a thousand, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my sweet Redeemer's praise. One tongue is not enough. I need a thousand tongues. Or, or how about this one? Oh, there one. Maybe that, that's not going to work. This one does work, though. Were, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or how about this one? Yeah. A newer song. Who else would rocks cry out to worship? Whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing. But this joy is mine. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honour and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Now, can I suggest that the rest of chapter 13 describes that type of service acceptable to God, that type of sacrifice, that type of life which follows Jesus outside the camp. It's a life that doesn't care the disgrace of the world, as long as God is pleased, as long as God is accepting of what we offer. Now, if, if we're thinking in terms of the five outcome areas we've looked at over the last month or two, chapter 13, it's mostly about loving one another. To be a growing follower of Jesus, we need to love one another. But have you noticed the connection with loving God? You see, we offer our service to God by loving one another. God is pleased when our whole lives are lived in obedience to him. A growing follower of Jesus loves God and shows it by loving one another, among other things. So chapter 13 describes a life that will increasingly set you apart as different. If you follow what chapter 13 says, then you will be increasingly stepping outside the camp of this world. This is a countercultural list of commands. If Christians did a little more of what chapter 13 says, people would probably treat us as even more of outsiders than we already are because so much of this stuff seems nonsense to the world. Verse 1, love each other as brothers. Have a look around. Go on, have a, have a look. Would you hang out with this group of people if it wasn't for Jesus? Maybe some of them. But I reckon there's quite a few that you think, oh, I hardly have anything in common with this person at all. And they're annoying but they're my brother in Christ, so I am here and I'm going to love them. I'm going to give up my life for them. 
That's countercultural, isn't it? People out there never hang out with people like we have here. It's hard work to treat each other like that, with love, to help, to weep, to care. It's countercultural service to God. Verse 2 Don't forget to entertain or show hospitality to strangers. Now, who does that? Most people out there don't even entertain their closest friends. Yet Christians are called to show hospitality to strangers, to those we have to work hardest with. That'll set you apart. Or verse 3, remember those in prison, those who are suffering. He's specifically talking about uh, the Jewish fellow Christians who've been locked up for their faith, who are being persecuted. Now, it's countercultural to step out of your comfort zone so thoroughly, to put yourself at risk for the sake of a Christian brother or sister. But these Christians were doing it and they were called to do it even more. That's countercultural. Well, look at the next paragraph countercultural service in the area of values. <laughs> I think there's nothing more that will show that you are an outsider more than your attitude to sex and money. They are more powerful forces than most of us would like to admit. The world says you can never get enough of both of them. You can never get enough sex, never get enough money. For Christians in the area of sex, we are going to be very visibly outsiders, aren't we? These days, marriage itself is a foreign concept, let alone marital faithfulness, but for Christians, it's one of our key distinctives because we know what a great gift marriage is and how beautifully God has designed sexuality. And we know how much God hates it when we misuse it. Verse 4 says, Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Honour marriage. Value it whether you're married or not. Marriage should be honoured by all, single and married. Honour marriage, but whatever you do, don't love your money. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You know, there's a saying out there, that money can't make you happy. I don't know if people actually believe it or not, but they say it. Money can't make you happy. But new research has actually proved that it can. I've mentioned this before. Apparently it's true. There's a simple formula for the amount of money that you need to have to make you happy. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in or whether you're working class or upper class. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what your income is. You see, the amount of money that will make you happy is more than most of your friends. More than most of your friends. Uh, university research has proved it. If you have more money than most of your friends, you are going to be happier than if you have less. <laughs> doesn't matter whether you're earning 100000 or 40000 Now, that says something about human nature, doesn't it? There's a painful eye condition called conjunctivitis, 
But I want to suggest there's an even more dangerous eye condition called comparisonitis. Now that's when you are constantly comparing what you've got with what you can see around you. And you're never content. And it's deadly. It's more dangerous than conjunctivitis. Be content with what you have. It's interesting. People think that if they can, could just get more money, that will give them more freedom. More money equals more freedom. Freedom to make choices, freedom to live the way I want, with the things that I want. But this encouragement is so countercultural. It says there's actually greater freedom, not in having money, but in being content. Being content will set you free. If you can live like that, you will really be different from the people around you. Being content. How can you possibly be content? Well, verse 6 says, you trust that God is with you, that God provides for you, that he meets your needs, and even when it doesn't seem like it, he's working for your good. That's the way to be content. You trust your heavenly father. The problem is the whole advertising industry works on the understanding that people are never content. Unless we want something we haven't got, we're not going to spend. The advertising industry works on the fact that we all want something new or bigger or faster. So be countercultural. Step outside the city. Be content with your salary, your car, your house, your phone. If your phone works, you really don't need an iPhone 14. And here's one final countercultural command. And I suggest it's something the world doesn't do naturally. Perhaps even Australians do even worse than the rest of the world. But it's there in verse 7, and again in verse 17 respect your leaders. <laughs> Australians are not great at it, are we? Respect your leaders specifically the leaders in your church. And I guess that's why this is a bit hard for me to talk about because it's pointing to myself as well as our other elders. Respect your leaders. Don't put them down. Don't criticise them. Obey them. Support them. Give them advice, constructive criticism. Back them up. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Uh, submit to their authority. Do you see the reason? Good leadership, it's not about building a personal empire for the leader. It's not about doing what's in the leader's best interest, but it's about doing what's best for the people. If you make a leader's job a burden, do you see it? that'll be of no advantage to you. Because that's what leaders are working to do, to be for the advantage of the people they are leading. Protect, guide, build up, to keep watch over you. That word for keeping watch, it's literally stay awake or lose sleep. Now your leaders are those who lose sleep over you because we have to give an account before God of how we've treated our precious cargo. So make their job easy. Listen, support, help, encourage, give feedback, 
Tell us how we can do it better. It's true, we, we lose sleep over you. Whether it's actually waking up in the middle of the night thinking about and praying for a situation or whether it's just session meetings that go really late, <laughs> we lose sleep. We do keep watch over you and it is a joy and it's something we do because we love it. And when our work is a joy, that is to your advantage. Well, there's a whole range of practical things you can do, things which are acceptable service to God, pleasing sacrifices to God. And as you do them, you will be countercultural. As you do them, you will step outside the city and bear the rejection that Jesus bore. But rather than finish on a negative, let's remember that our rejection it won't be forever. Our, uh, we're headed for another city. We're headed for a kingdom that can't be shaken. A city where our, our disgrace will be no more. Where instead of rejection by the world, we'll experience inclusion and intimacy and acceptance and celebration and, and ultimate acceptance. It's an experience we'll only, uh, we'll only know completely in eternity. But because of God's spirit among us now, we can begin to enjoy a taste of that inclusion. We can begin to glimpse it and experience it as we live amongst one another, as we love and share and look after one another. We might be rejected by the world, but we can be welcomed and included and joined together as we learn to love and accept each other. So let me finish with the wonderful words from chapter 12, verse 22, back towards the start of the reading. Chapter 12, verse 22, and it describes what we're headed for. Just another motivation for us to keep our eyes looking forward to that city where we'll be accepted by God, washed clean by Jesus, accepted by his people, gathered together forever. Chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, that's us, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture. We thank you for the wonderful reminder that we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And the challenging command to therefore serve you acceptably with reverence and awe, with thanks. Uh, Lord, that's a broad command. Help us to see the breadth of it. Help us to experience uh, the wonder of what you've given us and what is in front of us so that our lives might begin to resemble these descriptions uh, in all their breadth and depth. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.